Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. It is great to have you all with us here on December 23rd, if you're listening in real time. Uh, Many of you out there doing Christmas shopping in the rain in metro Atlanta. I haven't checked to see if it's raining throughout the rest of the state. If if it is, let me know. Uh, Those of you who are listening, Savannah, Macon, uh, Albany, Augusta, wherever, it's just a miserable, miserable day here in metro Atlanta. And I feel bad for everybody who's got to be out there running around still buying Hanukkah presents, Christmas presents. Hanukkah started last night. Tomorrow's Christmas Eve. You all already know all of that. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I'm sitting here alone in the studio today, which doesn't happen very often on Political Rewind. Um, a week ago, uh, senior producer Tom Faust and I went up to Johnny Isaacson's office in uh, Cobb County and recorded a long interview with him in which we talked with him about his life and his career And as you'll hear in a little while, talked a bit about the illness which has um, debilitated him and pushed him to uh, have to retire before he really wanted to. We're going to get to that uh, in a little while. Before we do that, I thought we should listen just uh, for a couple of minutes to the remarks, some of the remarks that Isaacson made as he made his farewell on the floor of the United States Senate a couple of weeks back. Let's listen to an edited version of what he had to say. I've been here for 15 years and loved every minute of it. This is the most enjoyable thing I've ever done in my life, to be a part of the United States Senate. Not because I like to be a senator, but because I like to be the people who are in the Senate. Politicians get a bad rap this day and time, a real bad rap. A lot of things are said about them by people where it doesn't matter, like those in some of the media and some of those places. But others as well take pot shots at people who are politicians and who serve the people in the community. I never do that, not because I am one, but because I know, because I am one, what you have to do. It's a tough job, and if it's not done, it's not done right. It doesn't get done the way it should for the people there. So I'm making sure that when I leave, and the last thing I do is to leave the people of Georgia in good hands, given the senior senator from Georgia retiring. You know, we still have some people in the United States of America who will play the hate card. We have some politicians who will dance around the issue of hate. They won't use the buzzwords, but they'll get awful close to them. They did it in Charlottesville. We've got to stand up for the evils of society today, because if we don't do it, nobody will. I decided I was going to tell you tonight what I really believe, and that is that America, we've got a problem. We live in the greatest country on the face of this earth. Ain't nobody any, different, any better than the United States of America. Everybody's trying to break in, nobody's trying to break out. We're always passing laws like they're all trying to break out. They're all trying to break in. Why? Because it's the safest, happiest, richest place in the world. But it is because we're the best people to protect that wealth and that happiness. We're that close, though. I, I see things happening that I'm asked about by people that scare me. And I've heard some people I know say some things that terrify me. We're better than the hate and vile statements that some people make and we got to be better than that. we got to talk not over them or under them. we got to talk to them. we got to sit down and say, why did you say that? God, what's your problem? Do we have a problem? And I'm telling you from my heart that after 45 years in elected office, raising three children and eight grandchildren, which my kids have done a great job of raising them, uh, living in a great community, working, living in a great church, doing the things I've done, I see some of it slipping away. I want to be here for you, and I want to be here when that bell rings, say, America, we don't have a problem anymore. We solved it. That is a portion of Johnny Isaacson's farewell, formal farewell, a speech that he gave on the floor of the United States Senate. His term, uh, he will resign officially on December 31st, uh, just about a week or so from now. Um, it's, It's noteworthy that there was a Senate—the the Republican caucus, like the Democrats, uh, has a luncheon once a week uh, where they meet to uh, discuss issues, to uh, talk as friends. Um, they decided—the Republicans uh, decided to honor Johnny on the same day that he gave his final remarks on the floor of the Senate. And Democrats began asking if they could attend because they care so much about Isaacson. 
It, it ended up with virtually every member of the United States Senate, Democrat and Republican alike, coming to celebrate Johnny Isaacson's life. And, um, and many of them uh, asked for time on the floor of the Senate to pay tribute to him. I, I thought it was interesting, and we're going to hear more about this when we get into the actual interview. Isaacson has probably come closer than any other Republican in Congress, with the exception perhaps of Mitt Romney, to tiptoeing up to being very openly critical of some of the behavior of President Trump. You may remember that on this show, uh, he at one point criticized the president for his response to uh, Charlottesville. We heard just a little of that without his mentioning President Trump by name in those remarks from the Senate floor. And I'm going to ask him about that and uh, whether he wants to go a little further in talking about President Trump during our conversation. Uh, We're going to get to that in just a couple minutes. But in the meantime, let's take our first break and come back and uh, we'll present my conversation with Johnny Isaacson. Erin Dick says, I heard it on NPR a lot, so it gave her an idea. Every time I say that, I make a mark on my calendar and then add them up at the end of the year and donate that much to my local station. Erin's NPR tip jar is her way of giving back. It makes me smarter. It makes me more aware. It inspires me. Invest in the journalism that keeps you informed and inspired. Make a year-end gift today. Go to gpb.org and click donate. And thanks. People in the prime of life are dying at higher rates, and that's lowering life expectancy in the U.S. One major cause, fatal drug overdoses. Going out, just taking these young kids in body bags and seeing how it crushes the parents, it's tough. I'm Ari Shapiro, Dying Young in America, a report from the Ohio River Valley this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 6 here on GPB. Senator Isaacson, thank you so much for spending some time talking with me. It's a pleasure to see you today. You're an old friend, a good friend. I'm just glad to do it and glad to talk to you about my 50 years or whatever it is in public life. It it has been basically 50 years uh, that you've been in public offices, hasn't it? I've been married about 50 years. I've been married 52 years. I've still been married longer than I've been in public office, but it's getting closer. (laughs) Not the same office, but always the same woman. Yeah. First of all, I think people would love to know Tell us a little bit about your health. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing as well as I think I could be. Well, that's probably not right. My doctor would correct that. But I'm, I'm a lot further than I thought I would be at this time. I was diagnosed about uh, eight or nine years ago and was elected for, to a six-year term and served one six-year term and a, and a half another six-year term before I could not really feel like I could do the job, which was, and that's why I'm, I'm retiring and, about six days, but it's primarily the uh, it's a neurological disease where my my legs don't necessarily always want to do what my brain is telling them to do, and you have balance problems, you have agility problems, you have tensile strength in your fingers and dexterity problems, and you have uh, side problems to that. With Parkinson's, there's no cure. About a million Americans have them have it, but one of the top uh, reasons for people committing suicide is the lack of the amount of frustration that it's hard to do activities day to life, you know, cook for yourself, go to the bathroom, those become very difficult. I have spent a lot of time developing strategies uh, to get around the United States Capitol and get around my office in the Longworth building and other places I go. And good thing is I don't need a lot of help once I'm in the buildings because they're, they're all they're all big wide hallways and sure. lots of doors and stuff like that. But it's a it's a different way to live and you have to have a good attitude. It's, it's an attitudinally destroying disease. The um, advancement of the Parkinson's has caught you a bit by surprise. You basically said it's moved a little faster than you anticipated it would. It has. I had my, I did my, I had my fifth fall in August and of last year, and it was in Washington. It was about 10, 11 o'clock at night, and I was alone in my apartment that I leased because it was safer. And I had a, I fell cleaning, I fell because I just slid on, a piece of paper slid out from under my heel of my shoe and it, I slid and fell with it. And broke four ribs and my uh, rotator cuff and went 10 days in the hospital or rehab and 
got fixed and got that done. But it, that told me, I said, that's the fifth one I've had. I, the doctor said, you're lucky now. He said, before you were wary, now you got to be lucky. He said, you're just going to, you're not going to be able to avoid hurting yourself badly unless you really develop a good way to live. So I started doing all the strategy stuff and everything else and have. And I've got, people in Washington have been great. I mean, they, they, uh, I tell them, just treat me like you'd treat me if I didn't have anything. But if I say I need something, I'll really need something. So when I do need something, I'll let somebody know and they'll get it for me. How have you maintained a positive attitude through all this? Well, when you're 75 or almost 75 in a week or so, um, you think about all the luck you've had in life, and the people you've gotten to know yourself and others, and people I've gotten to know in public life, and presidents and senators and representatives and ambassadors and everybody else. And the things you've been able to do, if you like doing things, and there are things you like doing. It, it, I, can, I can daydream all day long and be happy. And that's what I tell everybody. And, I, and my kids are healthy and they're doing great. My wife's a godsend for me. She's, I don't, God, God knew who he was giving me when he got me to marry her, but she's been terrific. Yeah. Um, all that said, are you approaching this retirement from the Senate with a sense of relief? That's an interesting question. Um, which deserves an honest answer. At times, you know, some days when I'm mapping out those strategies and I can't think of one, I, I get kind of frustrated. And anxiety is a major byproduct of, of uh, Parkinson's. It is a neurological disease, and anything that happens to you neuro neurologically, you're more vulnerable. And I'm vulnerable. I, I get a, can get a bad attitude in a hurry. Yeah. So I have to work on my mental state and mind and doing that. But it's, it, can, it can be a byproduct because it is frustrating. Um, you've got Parkinson's to deal with, and that's caused you to feel you need to step down. But there are many of your colleagues, as you well know, who have decided not to run for re-election, in some cases because they just have, are fed up yeah. with the gridlock, with the uh, partisan uh, wars that are going on more and more up there. More recently, most recently, Denny Heck from Washington, member of the House, uh, talked about the fact that it, he just can't take, it's not working anymore. He just feels that he has to get out of a poisonous atmosphere. Do you share any of that as you look to leave? Do you are you glad to some extent to extricate yourself? And do you agree with that characterization? I can understand how anybody could develop that problem being a member of the United States Congress or any other political responsibility, depending on how heavy the responsibility is. But uh, for me, it was not any, anything to do with my decision. I, I, was, I was lucky enough to, at 50 years of age or 54 years of age, get elected to do something I'd really wanted to do for a long time. And then I was lucky enough to be halfway good at making friends and getting some things done. So I was having the time of my life. So I, for me, I'm, a, I'm crying about this decision. I ain't celebrating. But, uh, but I do understand why somebody could. It kind of depends on the rest of your life. If some other things are going bad, then it's a hell of a mess. For you. I don't understand what he's saying. And there, also your age. I mean, he was at a position where age-wise he'd be there for quite some time, probably do some more stuff and just saw it all going away. And um, I understand why. It depends on a lot of circumstances beyond just the decision itself. I thought about uh, one aspect of that. In your case, you had hoped <clears throat> before you uh, uh, retired to, uh, you wanted to take up some meaningful gun uh, legislation that you felt was important, that you, you hoped to win bipartisan support for. And of course, with the impeachment inquiry beginning, with the increased um, warfare between Republicans and Democrats, uh, you didn't get to see that happen. And I suspect things like that must be very disappointing to you. There are aspects of your agenda that you wish you'd had a chance to complete. Well, you, you always have an agenda that's incomplete if you're a, pop, a, a, an elected official. You're thinking of things to do anyway. But no, that is one. I, I was. I, you probably don't even know this, and you know everything that's happened in Georgia, but I, was the, I signed the uh, instant background check bill the Brady Bill required of Georgia was the first state when we did to require the wait, waiting periods and background checks. I passed as a Republican <clears throat> because nobody on the Democratic conference, Murphy, Murphy was still the head of the House, and Murphy would say, I got to get this on the floor. I've been probably, but I can't do it. Gun people want to do it. I don't know what I want to do. Well, you, you get on the floor for me and help me out. I appreciate it. So I helped him out for a turn of chip somewhere down the line. 
Interestingly enough, 12, 15 weeks later, David Scott had the same bill on the floor and he got it on the floor and I spoke for it and we passed it, which exempted Georgia from the Brady Bill requiring it as long as we met the terms of the Brady Bill in Georgia law. So, and I was very proud of that. And I said, well, maybe I could have a positive impact on the current situation because the current situation is, 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 is hampered by two problems. One is the mental health problem. And I say the mental health problem because there are a lot of people who don't want you to tie the issue to mental health because they have some of these got mental health problems and they'd like to shoot or do something else. The mental health problem is one. And then the absolute decline in the morality and the consciousness and the, uh, I can't even think of the right word, but a lot of America has gone crazy. And in my closing speech last week, I said, uh, America, we've got a problem. We have a problem. And that's one of them where people are, it's easy to kill people and people don't have conscience anymore. And what happened in New York with uh, six Jewish people or five Jewish people and one layman who was shot and murdered in Pittsburgh, same thing, uh, anti-Semitic attacks on, on religion and people. <coughs> it's, it's awful and we're, we're going to suffer from it. We're suffering from it now. We're going to really suffer from it. It's easier. Now it's a daily occurrence. In the last eight days there have been six or something like that. You've got to confront that head on and get rid of it. And if you can't do it, you're going to be in trouble. But you've got to protect everybody's rights, too. And that's a tough balance. Yeah. But they didn't make this an easy job. They made a hard job because it is hard. So, but, yeah, that was one thing I'm sorry I didn't get to do. I've known you for about 35 years. And um, all those years ago, you and Paul Coverdale were basically the Republican Party. We were it. <laughs> in Georgia. Uh, I remember the days when uh, the two of you were kind of, were among a very small minority of Republicans in the state legislature. You have seen an extraordinary change. It didn't come until much more recently. It's only in, since about 2003 since we've seen the transformation of both the legislature and your colleagues in the Georgia congressional delegation. Why did that change happen? And how has it, how did it affect your career in public service? How did the change from Democratic majority to Republican majority take place? Yeah. Well, it was slow because it got, politics is a numerical game. You got a majority is five, you got to get five votes. You got four, you got nothing. So um, we had to get to a place where we get five votes, and we couldn't do it for a long time, or get a majority. But when we started doing it every once in a while, people got a taste of winning, so it began easier to sell people on running and trying, and we got a better quality of candidate running. The next thing you know, when I was minority leader in 1983 and 1990, we actually had a recruiting program to get people. That's how Jack Kingston got elected. That year, we elected three people who became, went to Congress in the next six years and began to eat away at the numbers so we'd have a fighting chance. That's how we did it. That's the only way you can do it. It's a numbers game politically, and you have to do it that way. You also, you have to show them promise. And I think if I did anything, I tried to be a good example of you can get something done if you'll play the game the right way. But I tell you, we had 161 Democrats and 19 Republicans in the House. That's like Custer had better odds than we had. And <laughs> we'd get shot in the back with arrows all day long. But uh, it would, Paul... Paul Coverdale was the minority leader. He had five votes, and the person that ran against him had one vote. So six people voting as Republicans in a 56-member body. We had zero influence. But Paul was a hard worker, a good, smart guy, did a great job. Proud of my history of being able to serve with him as Republican leader of the House and then in the Senate, not the leader, but be a Republican, and Paul did the same thing. So it was fun to do that. But we had some, we had some characters, I'll tell you what. We're sitting here in your office in Cobb County, and now, in 2019, the county, which was Democratic when you first started running, became all Republican. Now it looks like it's headed back in the other direction. What's changed in the demographics? Is it a demographic change that's uh, pushing Cobb back to the Democratic column? I don't think so. I think uh, the, the move to from Democrat to Republican was a journey. It was not a destination. It was a hard journey. This move was pretty quick. It kind of, Carter, Carter protracted it when he got elected in 76 because it, it blocked the Republican way that was starting in Tennessee and Florida and other places. So it's his election to president just slowed down our move to being a Republican county or state or at least to where you could elect a Republican. So we, we didn't catch up as fast as others did. Tennessee was ahead of us, some of the others. But now we 
got caught up in some surpassed in some cases. But the problem we've got is this. We, when, we, when, when we started winning the majorities, then we became overwhelming. We were almost a constitutional majority for one term. We almost had more than 120 votes in the House and Senate, which is something else. But uh, we, we had too much power. And Lord Acton is right. Uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I don't care whether you're a Republican or Democrat. The, the, the ability to do things when you've got an undeniable majority and you run over people is just too tantalizing for, for most people to take. And so... It breeds corruption, it breeds bad ideas, it breeds... But has the Republican Party at the same time, you, you do see demographic changes happening in the northern suburbs. Um, and, uh, in, as, it, and as part of that, you also see women uh, uh, who are uh, voting more frequently in terms of issues that matter to them. Has the Republican Party to some extent uh, failed uh, in efforts to reach out to women, to minorities. I mean, that's something that you have always been, I think, a real champion of. And I wonder if some of the change we're seeing is because the party hasn't taken your uh, lead on doing that. Well, I'll, I'll leave the, me taking the lead to somebody else to comment on, but um, I think the party, now who is, let me qualify who the party is. The party is anywhere you find the Republican Party in the majority, I can speak to that, uh, there's the risk of them going in the wrong direction to build it. And that's one of the wrong directions we have taken as a party in a lot of places. Not the monolithic party, but just county by county or somewhere else. I mean, you, you ought not be violence against women and a violence against women bill should pass whether you're Republican or Democrat or agnostic, whatever. But uh, we, we tend, tend to, Republicans tend to take fringe issues and use them because they were, they were a handful of votes you could count on. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. If you took when I, when I ran in, uh, in uh, 76, the Panama Canal Treaty was the big controversial issue in America. And somehow to be a Republican in Georgia, you had to be against Jimmy Carter selling the Panama Canal. Well, I didn't know why the hell we were against that, but we weren't near Panama anyway. So it was crazy to me. And the reason we were against it was because the Democrats were for it. But it was really the right thing to do at the time, but you had to use some thinking power and understand why it was right. So. We just picked the wrong one to get their votes and say, well, we got, we got the anti-Panama people. That's 40 votes. Well, we needed 80. Well, 40 votes is nothing. But we picked, picked bad battles and, and won them, <laughs> so to speak. And that's, that's one of the weaknesses of, of that absolute power. One of the other things that uh, you've watched in your long career is the erosion of bipartisanship. And, and you know, you're a remarkable example of, and we all know this about you, you talk about this, uh, finding ways to always work with people of the other party. And, and I'll tell you my, one of my greatest examples of this. I remember the bitter 1990 governor's race in which you and Zell Miller uh, fought for, for the governorship. He was hardcore in that election. He came after you tooth and nail. You've never campaigned in that style. But as an observer, at the end of that election, it seemed clear there was no love lost between you and Zell Miller when he took the governor's mansion. And yet, I also remember a day when we stood in Governor Miller's office to see him appoint a state school superintendent who would come in and try to remedy the problems that the state's schools were facing. And when you walked out, people's jaws dropped because we thought there was still this fierce divide between the two of you. That's something that seems to me to have always been part of who you are. You find a way to work with a guy like Azell Miller after going through a terrible campaign with him. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense, but the one thing I, I'm willing to, I, if I think I can do something, I am willing to take it on even if it politically sounds stupid. So I don't, Zell became a friend of mine after that race. It was a hard race. I never took it personal. It was sometimes, if I had it, I might, might not have felt as good as I I remember a debate at the temple between the two of you that I moderated. And they went after and my father. And he made comments about your father that I believe, I believe, as moderator of that debate, brought some tears to your eyes. No question about it. it, it I mean, that, that probably that's the only one that made, made, made me cry. Yeah. Some made me mad. That made me mad and cry. Yeah. But, but Zell, Zell Miller was, was a good man, and, and his death was one of my best friends. Yeah. We did a lot of things together, and it, he, it, to his credit, he initiated those. 
Zell Miller's a lot of things, but one thing, he was loyal and he appreciated people that helped him and he'd ask you to help him and if you lost and came back and helped him, then he'd be with you. So Zell was a great man. I enjoyed my friendship with him very much, but that was the toughest, political, that was the toughest thing I ever did in my life was running for that governor in Georgia and, and uh, with Zell being the incumbent or proceed, well, 16-year lieutenant governor running for governor. And, uh, but I, 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 one, I have a slogan. It's called Friends and Future Friends. In that race in 1990, people would always say, well, you can't win this race because there are not enough Republicans, or you can't win this race because you don't have enough friends in the art community, or whatever it is. I say, listen, this was all of life's about friends and future friends. We might not have enough friends today, but we're going to have them before I die. So let's do it, run a race that people are proud of so they won't be associated with us rather than just cussing everybody because we didn't win. And so when I lost that race and I ran the next time, I ran, I got a huge victory, a huge margin of victory, and I think it was people voting for me that felt bad about having voted for me, bad, voting against me in the governor's race. Yeah. So sometimes you have to have the stay in power or the, the cahoons to get out there and do what you should do for a long time before it comes true, but it came true for me. And I appreciate Zell doing it to this day. So in, in both, once you made it to the U.S. House and then of course to the Senate, uh, you saw, you were still part of an era in the earlier days where Republicans and Democrats were able to work well across the aisle. There was a common good in many cases, many bills. You always have felt that that was an important part of who you are. But that brings me back to my earlier question in a way. Bipartisanship is mostly dead up there. And, and I wonder if in some ways you feel like this is the time to get out because people aren't working for no. the common good. It's not the right time to get out for me. Okay. I hate the fact that I'm retiring, but I'm, I'm, I know I promised voters when I ran that I, I could do the job. And when I got to the point this past year when I had that fall in August that I, I knew if that happened again, I wouldn't be able to. I said, I'm going to let the right person run and get that seat before I do that. So I know the people's promises are kept. And so I did. And, and I didn't, I love to stay there. I love, I love it. I love the game. I love the, I love the accomplishment part of it. I love the friends I meet and things like that. But uh, no, I, I, did, I, I had not run, believe it or not, my patience had not run out yet. It was getting closer, but it had not run out. Are, do, are you concerned at all that in selecting Kelly Leffler to fill your seat, that a fissure has opened up among Republicans, not just here in Georgia, but, but some nationally too, because there are national Republicans weighing in on this question in some people's minds as to whether Leffler is a true conservative Republican or not. We don't know what Doug Collins may have in mind or any other uh, Republicans who think they're more conservative than she is. Are you at all worried that this is opening up a fissure that uh, could hurt the party? No, it's a fissure that opens itself when it has the opportunity all the time. I mean, Kelly's just the victim of a group of people that are in the party or outside the party that use a group in the party to take anybody that's nominated or picked by anybody they don't like in the Republican Party as, as the representative of the enemy. They want a litmus test. They want, yeah, they want a litmus test of something. They want an easy way to, to get on television for themselves, not for somebody else. It's like the, I don't know what to compare it to, but I've, I've dealt with it for 50 years. And, you know, and they, were, they were always against me. If you want to find out who they are, just go look at the people who voted against me. Because they were always, we'll get Isaacson. He's a good topic to, to go after. So they'd go after me and I'd become a litmus vote for whatever it was. But no, the, that, and that element is smaller in the Republican Party than it's been in the past. We actually, the one thing Donald Trump's election did to the Republican Party and the Dem Democratic Party bigger than the Republican Party, he fractured it on the grassroots basis because an element that was not in the grassroots at all in either party all of a sudden became there when, the, when he ran that race. And that's going to stay for a while. And I don't know what it's going to look like when it comes out of the Democratic side of that election, this election coming up or, or ours, but it's going to be more of that, not less in the future for a while. Get, uh, to the extent you're able to, do you want to go out and help uh, Leffler uh, when she really launches her, her public campaign for election? I have helped pe people help me all my life and I try and pay that back and help them. I know how I got where I am. And I'm going to help somebody who wants to be there, get there. And Kelly's, I've known Kelly a long time. Doug is great. And I'll be, I'll be out there beating the doors for Doug. Do you hope he does not choose to run, or do you think that's completely up to him? I, I never answer that question because it is up to him. 
I hope he does what's right for Doug. I know he and his wife. I know how hard he's worked. And he's worked very hard for a long period of time. And he got where he is today because he worked a long way and because he's sitting in the right place at the right time to be chairman of the Judiciary Committee or the ranking member when the biggest impeachment in 20 years is going on. So Let's talk just a bit about that. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting, Senator. And, and I hear from some members uh, every now and then who say to me, if you heard how some Republicans talk about President Trump privately, you might be surprised because they're much more candidate, candid about their concerns about the way he comports himself in office than they're willing to talk about publicly. You have come right up to the edge, and it did it on our show, of being pretty overtly critical of the president. And now you're leaving office. Do, do you feel any obligation to speak out a bit more about, if nothing else, his conduct in office? Well, if you will recall, the one that you're crediting me with for starting your, starting it on your show, I started on the floor of the Senate when, when the, it, the announcement came up. I was sitting at my desk and saw that he had the canceled, uh, shutting off, I mean, putting the flag at half-staff for a week. He yes. was only going to do it for a day in honor of John McCain. I yes. went to the floor and made a 20-minute speech. It was pretty doggone good, and it was because I was really mad. You know, I don't get mad very often, but I, when I'm mad, I'm mad. And it was just—it was just a perfect example how that type of behavior is nobody should do. And I went right after the president. and He—I thought he was going to come after me, and he never did. And um, I think he knew I was right, and I think I picked the right time. And I would—I would do it again. And in fact, use that event two or three other times to call him and say, "Mr. President, I don't want to have to do this again." But because he, he obviously has a tendency to do that, but I don't want to make up issues. Uh, I've been able to go send things to the White House and work on things to the White House pretty effectively, and, and that did not affect, affect my effectiveness, if that's the right way to say it. But uh, I'm, I give myself enough room. If, if there are 100 people in the Senate, I don't want only 51 of them to be with me. I want to get 100 with me. So you can't rule out Democrats, you can't rule out Republicans, and you can't rule, rule, rule out Republicans you like or don't like. Yeah. You've got to count. Everybody counts. So I'm gonna, I'll draw the line at just having a fight for fight's sake. But I'll go after anybody to do the right thing. I mean, I'm not thinking so much about whether you're, you're going to go after someone to have a fight. But, you know, I think the larger question, I mean, Speaker Pelosi would say right now, as you well know, that she believes that the impeachment that they're going through is something that has to happen, but that she also believes that the agenda, that important agenda items like getting this budget passed, like doing the tra new trade agreement with Canada and Mexico, she would say those are crucial as well. So I guess the larger question about President Trump really is not picking individual fights, but here's the question that I think Republicans may be asking themselves quietly. Is getting the judges that you want in place, is getting tax relief, uh, and especially helping corporations, uh, um, various individuals who want a lower tax, uh, uh, want to pay lower taxes, all the things that President Trump has promoted, is it worth the trade-off for the kind of individual that I think people across party lines recognize is unusual to say the least. I don't think that was a question. Yes, it was. No, uh, I, but I'll, I'll answer what I think we. Were I, I guess to what say. I'm saying is, uh, okay, tell you. What good does it do me in this interview or in a speech on the floor to attack the president of the United States, whoever that person is, because they did something I didn't like, unless it was something that was wrong for the country and wrong for the job they do. Well, so the president, as far as you're concerned, is continuing to do things that are in the best interest of the country. No, I didn't say that. Okay. I'll go back and start over again. It is my job to, to cause the best things to happen for the people of the United States that I believe ought to happen. Yes. It's not my job to wet nurse the president. And it is my job if the president uses his power in an indiscriminate way that I think is bad for the country for me to speak out or how I speak out or use my leverage as a chairman of a committee for, or something to send the clear message I don't agree with it. But I'm not, I'm not the singular head of the country. He's the singular head of the country in, in the 
executive branch. And, I, and, you know, I know there are a lot of people that would, would love for us to get in a fight, Democrats and Republicans, get in a fight with the president, because that serves their purpose. It doesn't serve my people's purpose. I mean, I hate, I hate to have some of the things going on, go on. I'm not a big fan of some of the people that are in, in office, including on my side of the ledger. But if, it's, if I've got a constituent and issues to handle for them and I want to get them done, it, it, if I, every minute I take off that is something I'm hurting them with, so I don't do that. So I know, you, I know, I know where we're, you want me to go, but I'm not going to go there. I won't pick that fight, but I'll observe it. So if it needs picking, I'll pick it. What is next for you? Well, as chairman of the Ethics Committee until December 31st of this year, which I still am, I'm not going to be doing anything. A job any- no one else wants. <laughs> That's right. I'm not going to be doing anything because I can't do anything. You're, you're restricted if you're in the Senate sure. to go in the private sector and do a number of things, which would be con- conflict. So there are a lot of things I can't do. I'm sure there's some things I can do that I don't know about yet. But what I'm going to do is, first of all, pay back all those people for all these years did things for me. When, I didn't, when there's nothing they could get out of me because I was out of office, I want to do out of office as much as I did for them when I was in office to let them know I'm still around. How do you pay them back? What does that mean? By be available, send them where my number is, my email addresses, and tell them this is where I'm going to be. And I'm, I'm not dropping out of anything, and I'm, and I'm not looking for anything. I've got a great wife and a great retirement to look forward to. And we... We did. I did enough work where people paid me for what I did, which is not what the government does, but to, to have some put away to do that. So I've got the flexibility to do something that I want to, but I have not planned to do anything. I want to help people out, do Skypes back to the schools. And I've done Skypes for 15 years now in the Senate for class, government classes. I'm do some of that. I've agreed to do some commencement addresses this, this uh, June. And Is there a nonprofit that means a lot to you that you want to get involved with? Well, there are a lot of them, and, and I doubt if I don't. I doubt if I'm going to marry one and make that my, you know, Hollywood. They pick one beneficiary and, and don't give him by anything. But the Parkinson's, Michael Michael J. Facts, I'm close to. He wrote me a note the other day, and I've committed to a couple of things for them. The Parkinson's people in, in Georgia are great, and Shepherd is a great center for Parkinson's rehabilitation, where I've done some of my rehab there. And so I will do things for any of those people that are helping me out, and to help anybody that's got that dread disease to, to deal, mentally accept it and then physically deal with it. Uh, probably a lot of people don't accept it, they don't deal with it, and they just die of old age and frustration. So I, but I have no specific plan whatsoever. I'm not, I, I, I don't have a book in me. Uh, I certainly not want to tell all type things. But, okay. Um, I'm pretty boring right now. One of the things I loved about my job uh, when I was covered national too, is all the people I got to fly around with, getting on these little eight-seat jets and flying around with people like Bob Dole. Because, you know, I was on the campaign trail early. Before. Oh, you were. You were one of the first. Really. And so I got, oh. Well, let me tell you about, I, we started down airplanes to sort of all day, but let me tell you about my one airplane trip I'll talk about. Sure. On foreign relations, I've done a lot of work on Africa. I've been there 12 times. One of the trips I went to, I went to, Darfur, no, to to Kenya, and to what's where was the genocide? Uh, Rwanda, Rwanda, and I went to Darfur. I said, listen, I, if we're going to go to Rwanda, I want to go to see Darfur. There, no Americans ever been there. Uh, John Kerry was there. One American's been there. I want to go, and I got the Secretary of State to approve it. So I took Diane with me, and we went to uh, two or three countries and then ended up in Darfur for one day. Al Brashear had an international criminal court judgment against him and was a wanted man internationally. He was the president of the country. And they said, you really don't want to go see this because it's, they really love where they are. They don't, there's no problem. We feed them. We clothe them. They, the people are all happy. And I went into that place, and we came to the, op- the opening of it, which is where a dirt road runs into a little mud puddle. And these women were weighing 60 and 70 pounds, crawling on their knees to find one piece of wood to take back for their fire for that night. Children, as long as they were older than tw- younger than tw- 12, were still alive, but most of the boys over 12 had been killed. They killed all the boys, so they couldn't fight for the, uh, for the Chads or anybody like that. And uh, North, Korea, <laughs> North Korea was the UN peacekeeper, so they were in there with their weapons loaded and, and unlocked to just kill anybody that even stepped out of line. 50,000 people. Eight wells for all of them, for all the water they had. It's the most unbelievable place in the world you could see. And when I saw that, 
that led my fire for the last eight years I've served because I spent a lot of time in Africa and a lot of time working to, I did Feed the Future. And you talked about, no, you didn't ask me about McCain. Dave Williams did ask me about McCain and that award, but I got the John McCain Award earlier this year for, for what I did on this stuff. I got, got some wells, got them some food, got them some health care, and tried to at least soften some of the impact of the most horrible thing I've ever seen. But every day you and I are like walking around having a bad day, I think about what a bad day those people have every day. So as we wrap up, what, what are you proudest of? in your life in public service? I know that's a terribly broad question, and I could go through a series of accomplishments that I've observed, but when you think about your, as you come to the end of your elective career, what will you take the greatest pride in? What are some of the things you've accomplished that matter to you? Well, let's talk about remember the most. That's a lot different than pride. Pride imports some, it's pride in me. I'm happy I was able to do them and help people. Kate Pusey, the Peace Corps volunteer who was murdered in Benin from my district and uh, treated very, her parents and friends were inappropriately treated by the American State Department trying to get her body and her clothes back. And I went to Benin five times and finally got a a prosecution. I didn't didn't get a conviction, but the people that should be held accountable were. And Ms. Pusey, who lives down in the the, uh, villages in Florida now, it's a great lady. Became a great friend of mine. She's a, she's at peace, and I, I felt good about that. The Delta Airlines pension fund for their employees. I, I saved that with about four four hours to go on a Friday night in Washington before a judge declared them bankrupt, and got him to change the law so they could declare them structural, uh, make a structural bankruptcy rather than a absolute bankruptcy, and it saved the pension fund for long enough for them to restore the pension fund. So the pensions that are getting today, everybody but the pilots, the pilots have their own. The baggage handlers, the mechanics, they're, they're all collecting their pension today because that bill passed. In fact, at every airline, not just Dell, but, but nobody else could got it done. And you might say, well, how, how did you get that done? You were just a freshman then. Well, I, didn't, I got it done because I didn't know I couldn't. I'm, that's really the truth. And I, 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 went, I went in some rooms in that, that year that I'd never been in since the couch because I couldn't find them if I wanted to. They're the rooms they go to when they don't want you to know where they are. And but I, Bill Thomas in the House was a good friend of mine, and the, a few Democrats were. And and uh, Trent Lott was the leading Republican on it. And we worked our way until we made that deal and got it to the desk of the President of the Senate and got it to the House to accept. And with four hours left to go, and it was a tremendous thing for them. And I'm glad I was able to do it. So those those two things, which are little things. Uh, that's not a... But they're people things. They're people things. But I, there are a lot of things that, that I've done that I, but they help, help people that mean a lot to me. They probably wouldn't make it in the newspaper anyway. But. So as we finish, um, if, if you don't mind, I want to make an observation. Um, we talk a lot about the partisan wars going on between Democrats and Republicans right now in Washington. But there's also a war that, that I would say, unfortunately, has been launched by the president against the, the media, the fake media. So to some extent, we're involved in a, uh, in a battle for our credibility. Um, but I want to say something about you and my relationship with you over 35 years. I believe my job has always been to hope that I can um, it, it elicit from you uh, information about who you are, what you believe, and, and, and do it in the most respectful way possible. You do that, no question, man. But, but what I want to say about that is that you have always treated me as a member of the media with respect, with kindness, and that's, to me, incredibly important because we're in a time when reporters and the people they cover in politics don't necessarily have that relationship anymore. And it isn't that I haven't at times been asked you questions that are uncomfortable or see, are tough, but it's because that's the way you are as a person. You, tr- you take people on respectfully and with, with you give, but your dignity uh, confers dignity to those of us who deal with you. And I, I appreciate you for that more than I can ever say. Well, I appreciate you saying so. And, and, and we are, you the first guy that gave me a chance to give one of those answers that people would appreciate. I, I, 
back when I was running for the first time for yeah. the 70s, I mean, Republicans were an endangered species. <laughs> it wouldn't help your job to interview me. But I appreciate the fact that you did. I appreciate what you say and have done. I appreciate the things you've taught me that I learned from you about this whole process that we're in and then the fun we've had at uh, Woodruff Hall and some of the other places we've been yeah. over the years. So yeah. it's just a pleasure to do business with you. Yeah, we're all we're both a lot older than we were when we first started uh, dealing with each other. We're not we're not dumber than we're smart. I think we're both better looking. I think so too. <laughs> all my mirrors are broken now, so I don't have to look at myself anymore. <laughs> Senator, thank you so much thank for you. spending time with You're me. You're great. Thank you very Take much. Care. Before 2019 comes to a close, do your part to keep public broadcasting strong here in Georgia and beyond. Make a tax-deductible year-end gift now at gpb.org or 800-222-4788. And your support of GPB will be doubled. That's thanks to a challenge from Jane Hyatt at the Hyatt Fund Community Foundation of Mississippi. That's gpb.org or 800-222-4788. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, we look back at the year in movies and television with our film critic Justin Chang and our TV critic David Cooley. They'll each have their 10 best lists. You might want to watch some of their favorites during the holidays. Join us. Fresh Air this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB. You can also listen live online at gpbnews.org or download our GPB apps to your mobile device from your favorite app store. I'm back live in the Political Rewind studio. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Johnny Isaacson, a little personal at times in ways that I hope you appreciated. We've known each other for many, many years. I thought it, the interview brought out some aspects of his personality that may not uh, be as well known to people out there. Uh, before I uh, conclude today's show, I do have a couple of program notes that I want to share with you. First of all, this is our last live show of 2019. Tomorrow, Political Rewind is stepping aside, and we're going to present to you uh, a special edition of my show, Two-Way Street, an annual tradition in which I read Truman Capote's remarkable short story, uh, A Christmas Memory, and then I turn it over to my wife, the playwright, Janice Schaefer, who reads a wonderful little story that she wrote called Christmas Tree Envy, which uh, is about what it's like to be a five-year-old Jewish girl longing for a Christmas tree. So we'll have that for you tomorrow at 2. On Friday, uh, we're going to do a special edition on gerrymandering. And uh, next week, our annual Top 10 Political Stories show will uh, air. It features Jim Galloway, Greg Bluestein, Tia Mitchell, and Tamar Hallerman, all of our good friends and panelists from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. On Friday, January 3rd, we're going to replay our conversation with three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author Rick Atkinson. He'll talk about his new book, the first volume of his books on the American Revolution. All right. That said, if I don't want to run out of time to say something about the people who are so important to this show. So I'm going to do that before I make any other remarks. Uh, I, I can't tell you how fortunate I feel to work with the team that I do. That includes senior producer Tom Faust, producer Sam Burmis dawes our wonderful engineer Jesse Nicewanger, who often writes some of the music that you hear on this show. Engineer Alex Ward, who is leaving us to go over to Turner Broadcasting, and I've already told him how much I hate the fact we're not going to have him around. Ellen Reinhardt, our program director. Tom Barclay, who works on the logs and gets our makes sure that our shows get on the air the way they're supposed to. Uh, Adam Woodleaf, who oversees all of the technical operations here. Mary Lynn Ryan, our vice president of news. Uh, Allison Hashimoto, Taya Ryan, and uh, in sitting in the control room right now, our director of our Facebook Live, Quinnell Bethelme, is uh, also with us. So I, I just want to thank all of you for uh, everything you've done for Political Rewind, and, and I'm sorry I don't say your names often enough. All right, so before we leave you today, I just want to make a few comments. In 1959, in August of 1959, uh, Alan Drury's book, Advise and Consent, was published. Advise and Consent, to this day, remains uh, the definitive novel about the workings of Washington, Capitol Hill, and the White House. 
a book about the controversial nomination of a secretary of state and the inner workings and the machinations of getting him approved or uh, getting him rejected. That book, I was about 12 years old. That book electrified me. And from that day on, I was hooked on politics. A year later, I went to the Republican National Convention, which was held in Chicago at the International Amphitheater. And as a 13-year-old kid, somehow talked my way into the convention hall and ended up in a demonstration on the floor of the hall when Richard Nixon came in as the nominee that year. It was really an exceptional experience. The point of all that is to say that politics has been in my blood for a very long time. So I guess it's not surprising that when I went into journalism, I uh, decided that politics was I wanted to cover. I think a lot of you know that over the decades I've covered many presidential campaigns. I've gotten to know many of the candidates and the people who worked for them very well. It's a really small world to, when you uh, get to start talking to people in politics. Uh, you find out that uh, the people who are a press secretary for one presidential candidate go on to be the press secretary for another. Sometime later, you renew your acquaintance. I first got to know George Stephanopoulos when he was working for Michael Dukakis's presidential campaign in 1988. And then in 92, we reunited when he went to work both in uh, Bill Clinton's campaign and in the White House. Similarly, I got to spend a lot of time with George W. Bush and Jeb Bush when they were campaigning for their father, George H.W. Bush, in 1988. And over the years, Jeb and George W. Bush and I have uh, kept in touch one way or another, including when George W. was in the White House. So why do I tell you all this? For a couple of reasons, I, I think. Um, one of the things that I've learned working with Republicans and Democrats over the years is when you get to know them, uh, they, you learn about them as people instead of as polarizing figures. My wife uses an expression that I love. She says the definition of an enemy is someone whose story you don't yet know. I found that out covering politics over the years, that even people whose political opinions I disagree with can be people who I find to be terrific to uh, have uh, associations with, to some extent friendships with. And, and I think about that in terms of political rewind. We have a stable group of panelists who come in here to do the show, Democrats, Republicans, academics, and the like. And because I've gotten to know them as people, I see them now not as partisans. I mean, I don't agree with a lot of what they have to say necessarily, but when you get to know them as people, it's hard to demonize them. So I think that's what I care about most. We're not going to overcome the partisan divide in this country anytime soon. But if we can start seeing the people who we disagree with as real human beings and learn that we don't have to hate them, that's about as close as I think we can get to coming together. And that's what I hope to do in 2020 on Political Rewind. I'll see you again live on January 6th. Take care.